In the name of the Holy and Undivided Trinity. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Doug Savage is a cartoonist who likes to draw cartoons of chickens on post-it notes. <clears throat> One cartoon that keeps cropping up on my social media evidently comes from a list of instructions for how to be a good conversationalist. The caption on this one reads, Ask people questions that give them an opportunity to talk about themselves. It's good advice, and probably not the first time you've heard something like that. But below the caption is the cartoon of two chickens having drinks, and one of them is trying to follow that advice by asking the other, What the bleep is wrong with you? Obviously, that kind of question is not a good way to start a conversation. If you start out asking me what the bleep is wrong with you, I'm not likely to be to open up and talk about that. I'm more likely to answer or at least think to myself, where the bleep do you get off assuming that something about me is so dreadfully wrong, especially compared to you? On the other hand, what if that conversation is with yourself? Don't you have moments, more often than you care to admit, wherein you ask your very own self what the bleep is wrong with you? I assume you do have those moments because I know I do. There's so much a part of me that I tend not to believe people who say they've never had a moment like that. They might be very successful. They might even get elected president. But on that question, I don't know how to believe them if they say they've never asked it of themselves. Our readings for this day wrestle with that question, what's wrong with us? Why, as individuals and groups, do we repeatedly sabotage ourselves and victimize others? Why do we find ourselves so often echoing St. Paul, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. So today's readings wrestle with that question, and they even provide some hints at answers, but mostly they wrestle with it because there's just something inexplicable about our being human, something more inexplicable about our being human so conflictedly, and something even more inexplicable about God coming to share in our conflicted humanity so that we can share in God's all-reconciling divinity. We humans keep learning how to describe ourselves in more and more detail as minuscule parts of a vast universe. And yet, inexplicably, we minuscule parts, we are minuscule parts who can recognize that we are minuscule parts. 
As some people like to say, we are the universe becoming aware of itself. And there's something about being uniquely you and uniquely me and uniquely us together that can't be captured in a bunch of general descriptions no matter how detailed. More inexplicably, we find ourselves longing for relationships with others, a kind of communion, a sharing of common life that makes each of us uniquely ourselves. And yet, whenever this longed-for common life starts to get too real, we run away, or else we sabotage the relationship over and over again. We seem to be conflicted all the way down. And yet, most inexplicably of all, this communion we keep longing for and running away from somehow keeps showing up and remaking us over and over again. All of this remains inexplicable. What makes us human? What makes us conflictedly human? What keeps reconciling our conflicted humanity? And it's not only inexplicable, it's somewhat indescribable. We do say in this community of faith that life is sort of like that, but the sort of reminds us that we'll never be satisfied with what we say. So today we've got a story about how the first humans messed up everything for the rest of us. It doesn't really explain how things went wrong. There was a talking snake already messing with things before Adam and Eve got seduced into doing the one thing God told them not to do. And the story doesn't tell us how the snake got that way. It does not say either that this snake was Satan. That's a later interpretation. It sort of implies that the couple should have known better. But it doesn't explain how they could have known better before they gained the knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't explain why God's warning was somewhat misleading, while the snake's prediction was pretty accurate. They didn't die on the day they ate the fruit, and the knowledge of good and evil did make them more godlike, as even God later admits. And it doesn't explain how God, at least in this story, could be so clueless. Forming Adam and only then realizing that Adam should not be alone, trying out non-humans for Adam's companions, and only then realizing that only another human will do, wandering off to leave them alone with the snake. In this story, God does not look at all like the grand architect of Genesis 1 <clears throat> who summoned every part of the world from chaos into a diversely creative community. None of this really explains how things went wrong. It basically doesn't tell us more than that one line from our catechism. From the beginning, human beings have misused their freedom and made wrong choices. 
it's an example of what's wrong, but it's not much of an explanation. It might be a little disconcerting for us Christians to realize that the rest of the Hebrew Bible has nothing to say about this story. It has a lot to say about how conflicted we are, but it's not very interested in how we got that way in this world of God's making. But by the time of Jesus and Paul, Greek-speaking Jews were beginning to make a bigger deal out of Genesis. A book called The Wisdom of Solomon tells us, God created us for incorruption and made us in the image of his own eternity, but through an adversary's envy, death entered the world. We hear echoes of that in today's lesson from St. Paul. As sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all, because all have sinned. By the way, Paul did not say that we inherited something called original sin. That's a misreading. We don't know if Paul had actually read the wisdom of Solomon before he wrote this letter because it was being written around the time that Paul wrote. But he was at least familiar with that way of reading the story. It was beginning to become a bigger deal among his original faith community. And he loved that way of reading it, because he already believed that the actions of a single human being could have consequences for everybody. We don't know if he knew Matthew's story of Jesus' temptation as we heard it today, but he did present Jesus as, in effect, the second Adam, the Adam who managed to resist temptation. But again, none of this is really much of an explanation for how things went wrong. It tries to locate where they went wrong, but not how. Paul is still left with that later confession of how inexplicable yet inescapable his own conflicts are. I do not understand my own actions. We and Paul may remain dissatisfied with any story of how we got that way, but we do know that we are that way, conflicted all the way down. But of course, Paul likes to talk about how inextricably conflicted we are only because he already knows that this is not the last word about us. Just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For all. Paul is able to confess how conflicted he is, and we are able to confess how conflicted we are, only in the light of a much deeper grace, God's all-reconciling love, fleshed out in the life, death, and risen life of Jesus, God coming to share our conflicted humanity so that we can share in God's all-reconciling divinity. Where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. In the coming weeks of Lent, we can afford to focus on how conflicted we are, 
only because we've already heard how outrageously loved we are, how outrageously loved everybody is. And we need to keep all of that in mind. It's grace that gives us the courage to look at ourselves with full honesty. And we really need to hear this at All Saints, and so does the rest of our world, and maybe especially our nation. Listen to the words of a writer who shows us how deep our need for the news of this grace is. Your desire to be seen as good by yourself and by others prevents you from looking at the ways you unknowingly participate in and are a part of evil because of your conflicted humanity. Your desire to be seen as good can actually prevent you from doing good because if you do not see yourself as part of the problem, you cannot be part of the solution. These words ring true to me, especially because what rings even truer is how God's grace allows me to let go of that desire to be seen as good. So I can afford to be honest. But this writer, Leila Saad, is not writing about our need for God's grace. She's writing about our need to be relentlessly honest about another deep-seated problem in our culture. I've actually substituted some crucial words. Let's hear the original. Your desire to be seen as good by yourself and by others prevents you from looking at the ways you unknowingly participate and are part of white supremacy because of your white privilege. Your desire to be seen as good can actually prevent you from doing good because if you do not see yourself as part of the problem, you cannot see yourself as part of the solution. Saad puts her finger, I think, on what it is about so many of us who identify as white that makes our politicians and school boards and parents practically fly into hysterics whenever anybody wants to introduce a sobering study of racism in America. People fly into hysterics over this because they are so unversed at looking at themselves in the light of grace. Of course, this diocese and this parish are not flying into hysterics about that. That's nothing to brag about. We're not flying into hysterics. Congratulations. <laughs> and it doesn't mean there's no resistance. But we have at least resolved to look at ourselves with full honesty. It's still very daunting for those of us who identify as white. But I believe it's because we are learning to look at ourselves in the light of grace that we are not even thinking of abandoning this project even when that makes some of us extremely uncomfortable. We can afford to examine how deep-seated our complicity in this social ill turns out to be, because there is something even deeper at work in us that will not leave us stuck with our conflicted selves. Maybe we can't fully explain how we came to be so conflicted, conflicted all the way down. 
and maybe we can't fully explain or even describe how outrageously loved we are, <clears throat> even in the midst of our deepest conflicts. But we have heard and keep retelling this story of God coming to share our conflicted humanity so that we can share in God's all-reconciling divinity. It doesn't make any of our common problems go away, but it does grant us the courage to face them. Amen.